Oh, I haven't been here for a while. <laughs> so I said last week and said when I got here, it's good to be back with you again. I'm still doing some healing from surgery, but I'm feeling good. And I come today very grateful um, for those who gave some very fine sermons while I was recovering. Um, thank you to Glaffy Carr and Eric Iki, to our district superintendent, Reverend Mark uh, Nakagawa, and Reverend Mark Ulrichson, who was here last week. Um, I am so blessed to have folks that will step in when I need them. And now here we are in the heart of Lent. And as you will hear, today's gospel reading fits right in with the themes of a season meant to prepare us to receive and rejoice in the promise of resurrection on Easter. Before Carolyn reads the text, let me just share a little bit about what's going on. In the chapter, in the ninth chapter of Luke, uh, we read, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem. So as this chapter opens, chapter 13, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem and he knows that his time is short. And so his ministry and his message take on a new urgency. And in the 12th chapter, just prior to, um, to today's reading, Jesus is teaching both his disciples and the crowds at, that follow him. And he does so by telling them several parables about money, about foolishness, about the need to be prepared, to be ready. And he also seems just for a moment to express a little frustration. In chapter 12, verses 54 through 56, he tells the crowds, when you see a cloud rising in the west, you immediately say, it's going to rain, and so it happens. And when you see the south wind blowing, in contrast to our northeast winds, I guess, you say, there will be scorching heat, and it happens. You hypocrites, you know how to interpret the appearance of earth and sky, but do you not know how to interpret the present time? And what should they see in the present time at that moment? The coming of the kingdom of God that is already breaking into the world in the person of Jesus. Let's listen to what happens next. I'll be reading Luke 13, 1 through 9. At that very time, there were some present who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. He asked them, do you think that because these Galileans suffered in this way, they were worse sinners than all other Galileans? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all perish as they did. Or those 18 who were killed when the Tower of Siloam fell on them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others living in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you, all, you will all perish just as they did. Then he told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came looking for fruit on it and found none. So he said to the gardener, See here, for three years I have come looking for fruit on this fig tree, and, I, and still I find none. Cut it down. Why should it be wasting the soil? He replied, Sir, let it alone for one more year until I dig around it and put manure on it. If it bears fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. The word of God for the people of God. 
Thanks be to God. Jesus' teaching is interrupted by people bearing news of an atrocity that had happened in the temple in Jerusalem. Did you hear, Jesus? The Roman governor, Pilate, sent soldiers right into the sanctuary to cut down some of our fellow Galileans just as they offered at their sacrifices at the altar. The speakers are appalled, and rightly so, for this is a state-sanctioned act of terror. Jesus does not, however, react as one might expect. Instead of expressing anger or dismay or sorrow, he hears the unspoken underlying question that comes to all of us when a tragedy occurs. Why do bad things like this happen? Did God make this happen? Whether it is a violent act like the shootings and in the mosques in New Zealand or a calamity like the floods in Mozambique, we look for an explanation for such tragedies, that will, an explanation that will restore our faith in a world of order and stability, an explanation that will make things right in our minds. Jesus also understands that the answer that comes most readily to mind is that those who harmed must have brought it on themselves. In other words, we blame the victims. Let me give you a rather extreme example. Um, last Tuesday, I was at the El Segundo City Council meeting when the council, uh, as they often do, made, made a proclamation. There were a couple of them, and the first one that they made was proclaiming April 25th as Denim Day. Have you ever heard of Denim Day? Well, they hadn't either, okay. So it sounds funny, but it turns out it's actually rather serious. Um, it turns out that April is a Sexual Assault Awareness Month, and each month, the fourth Wednesday of April is designed, designated as a day for everyone to wear jeans, and this is why. Uh, it grew out of a 1998 Italian Supreme Court decision that overturned a rape conviction. According to court records, the case was dismissed and the perpetrator released because the victim wore very tight jeans. The court said that she must have had to help the rapist remove her jeans, therefore it was no longer rape but consensual sex. Really? Really? Enraged by the verdict, the women in the Italian parliament protested by wearing jeans to work, not something you would have done in 1998. And so for the past 20 years, people have worn jeans, denim jeans, on the fourth Wednesday of April as a protest against blaming sexual assault victims for what happened to them. This kind of blame game happens all the time. And it's all too easy for us to join in. I'm sure I'm not the only person here who has ever thought or said, if they hadn't been there in the first place, or they took that rest, risk when they chose to, or that's what you get when, or they probably got what they deserved, or to use a more Southern idiom, someone's not been living right. I imagine that many in the crowd around Jesus were thinking something along those lines. 
To their surprise, however, Jesus flatly refuses to join in the blame game. In fact, he utterly rejects the idea that people suffer because they have sinned, and it's corollary that people are blessed because they have been righteous. Do you think, he asked the crowd, because these Galileans suffered in this way, they were worse sinners than all other Galileans? And what about the people on whom the Tower of Siloam fell? Were they worse offenders than all the others living in Jerusalem? No, I tell you. Sin does not cause tragedies, they just come. But then Jesus drops a bombshell. But unless you repent, you will all perish just as they did. This is a chilling statement. And my first reaction is to wonder who this man is and what he's done with my friend Jesus. I mean, what is Jesus saying here? Is he, is he contradicting himself? Is he actually saying that God will strike down those who sin? I don't think so. I don't believe that God works that way, and I think that Jesus would agree. And I think he made this shocking statement not just to scare the people, but to wake them up, to help them to give their full attention to what he's saying, to wake them and us up, for the kingdom of God is breaking into the world. The kingdom of God is coming. And it is time for us to repent. We need to repent. So what does Jesus mean when he says that we need to repent? Most of us think of repentance in moral terms, uh, having to do with the way we treat others, and that is certainly a valid understanding. But there's more to it than that. Uh, theologian Matt Skinner, in, a, in an oral um, commentary, thinks back to Jesus' comment about interpreting the times in chapter 12, and he, and he says, repentance is not about moral transformation, if it is that secondary to this idea of a new perception of what is true, what's real, about having the possibility of actually sensing the kingdom of God in our midst and the kingdom realities around us. The call to repentance is not so much like stop swearing so much. It's more about what we see. It's can you recognize what the time is about? And the time is about the inbreaking of God's kingdom. In other words, to repent is to open our eyes to the true reality of the world around us, to the pain and suffering that is present yet, including that on which we inflict on others by what we do or don't do. And also to open our eyes to the way in which God is at work in the world so that we might join in that same work. We're not just, repenting is not just feeling bad and saying I'm sorry. It's also learning to see things in a new way, in God's way. And we need to do that now. Jesus is reminding us of something we'd rather not think about, namely that life is short 
and that we have no control over when or how we will die. I almost picked the hymn softly and tenderly Jesus is calling to go with this service, but there's this third verse. You ever really looked at the third verse? Let me, let me just, I just have to share it with you because it was like, really? <laughs> um, it has to do with the fact that time is indeed short. Uh, I wasn't going to do this, but I am now. Because <laughs> I just, like, kind of, I can't even find it. So it has to do with the, with the fact that shadows are coming. And it, it has the phrase, deathbeds are coming, coming for you and for me. Which is, in my mind, excuse me, I know that some of you love that hymn, but I find that horribly gruesome. But it's true, isn't it? I mean, we're all going to die. And Jesus is saying this not to scare us, but to wake us up to the grace that is ours, to the truth that every moment of our lives is an opportunity to see the world as God sees it, with compassion and love and grace, and to align our lives with God's purpose and presence. Death may come to us all, but so does God's redeeming grace. To make this clear, Jesus does what he always does. He tells a story, a story about a fig tree. Now, it may help to understand that fruit trees are a common metaphor in Scripture. The first psalm describes those who follow God's law like trees, as being like trees planted by streams of water, which yield their fruit in season and that their leaves do not wither. On a different note, in the third chapter of Luke, John the Baptist urges his listeners to bear fruits worthy of repentance and warns that even now the axe is lying at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown in the fire. And in Galatians 5, Paul describes those who live by the Spirit as trees bearing the fruit of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. So Jesus is not using a metaphor that's anything new to the people to whom he's speaking. In this parable, an absentee landlord comes to inspect his vineyard. Among the vines is a fig tree. The land is there. It's common to plant trees. The vines can wrap themselves around it. But sadly, this particular fig tree is not bearing fruit. In fact, it hasn't borne fruit for three years, and the master is sick of it. This tree is just wasting the soil, he complains to the gardener. Cut it down. Get rid of it. Now, if I were that gardener, I'd say, yeah, let's get rid of it. It's, it's you know... It's obviously not, it's probably dead. So, and I, you know, I can use that space for something that's more productive. But our surprise, this gardener comes to the tree's defense. Sir, he says to the master, let it alone for one more year until I dig around it and put manure on it. Who knows? Next year you may just have figs. But if not, then, of course, you can cut it down. One more year. 
given the context, it's all too easy for us to assume that this parable is an allegory, that the master is God, the gardener is Jesus, and the tree is us. But that's not necessary, and frankly, it's misleading. God is not an angry master who needs to be mollified by Jesus. In fact, Jesus himself portrays God as a shepherd looking for lost sheep, a woman seeking a lost coin. God is a father who waits for his wayward son to come home and rejoices when a sinner repents. Though this parable also indicates that the time for repentance is limited, it offers us a picture instead of an angry God, a God who is so patient, so loving, that even when we show no signs of, of bearing the fruits of repentance, God is willing to offer us one more year and will do anything and everything to help us. To be sure, the parable leaves us in suspense. We're not told if the extra time and the gardener's efforts were successful. But then, as Eric Barreto writes in his commentary on this passage, repentance is not a trade we make with God. It is a leap of faith that our deepest hopes will not leave our lips unheeded. We indeed hope that we will never experience tragedy, that we will live long and peaceful lives. Jesus dares to counteract that hope in favor of a greater one. That when, when we experience tragedy, it can serve to shake us out of complacency and remind us that every day, every moment is a gift, an opportunity to share love and do good, to speak truth and to make a positive impact on the world. Thanks be to God for this grace. In the bulletin, I'm lifting up prayer practices that you might follow during the week. And as it happens, the one that's in there now is the one from last week, but that's okay. You might look at it again. The idea is that as you go through your day, you notice things that help you to pray. So the first way is to think about the places you go and what you might pray for as you come to those places. So if you go by a school, you might pray for the children. As you get on the freeway, you might pray for safety and for all those in dr you drive, who drive with you, etc. But there are other things you can do. You can, when you look at the news in the paper, which is so often filled with those tragedies, use that as an opportunity to pray, to pray for those around you and to think about how you might make a difference, how you might help in some way, even if it is only by praying. And another way is to think about the people whom you encounter today, during the day. And as you see them, as you meet them, imagine God's love surrounding the two of you and think about, pray that they might be Christ to you and you might be Christ to them. These and many other ways are tools, if you will, that we can use to help us indeed repent and see the world as God sees it. May God give us the courage to do that 
to repent, to open our eyes and reorient our minds and hearts so we might truly live fruitful lives, serving the God who loves us beyond all measure, no matter what. Amen. <laughs>